0: Hi, Hi Rock, I'm so glad to be with you as we come to Scripture together today. We'll continue to walk through Luke's Gospel and explore how life in God's kingdom is radically different than the life the world offers us. What do you think of when you you hear that word, radical? Maybe it has political or religious connotations, or maybe fashion, you know, those totally outside-the-box designs that you only see on a runway or maybe New York, but probably not the streets of your neighborhood. Maybe it's things like tattoos or body piercings or women with shaved heads. (laughs) Being radical means pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable by society. Every generation has them—the soldiers of the Revolutionary War, the Black Panthers of the 60s, the Sunflower Movement in Taiwan, and, and those who have continued to advocate for police reform. These folks have dreams of how the world could be different and could be better, and they're willing to be ostracized and ridiculed in pursuit of that dream. While they all might have different dreams, most radicals share their age in common, While many folks do care deeply about the same injustices or have the same desires for a different world, the young are often the heart of radical revolutions. I remember sitting down with my family the first Thanksgiving meal after starting college. While passing the mashed potatoes, I made some big statement straight out of my sociology 101 class. I had big dreams for the world too. Most of the older adults at the table chuckled. One of them told me, just wait until you grow up. You won't be quite so radical then. It was a kinder way of saying the same thing that's been attributed to everyone from Churchill to John Adams. Isn't that part of why any of us choose to follow Jesus? You've had the kind of encounter that Pastor Dave described last week, a miraculous, life-changing encounter with the Savior of the world. You realize that Jesus was more than a good teacher or a wise prophet. He was God, the creator of the universe, and he loved you. You had this encounter with Jesus, and it changed your life. You knew Jesus offered real fulfillment and real purpose, and he was worth trusting. It made following Jesus radically so appealing. It's that summer camp high or or the missions trip commitment. It's it's the moment we see a miraculous cancer-free result or the positive pregnancy test that we've been waiting for. It's seeing your child walk for the first time or witnessing the beauty of a sunrise. Those mountaintop moments where God's power and promises are undeniable for many of us. These are, these are the moments of conversion where we commit to being the people of God who choose God's kingdom ways. And so we boldly share our faith. We give generously. The world might even say foolishly so. We speak up against injustice and we don't care about our egos or our image. We live radically because we are trusting something bigger than anything we could create on our own. At least for a while. (laughs) As I sit with that quote about liberals aging and turning into conservatives, and I take stock of our current political landscape, I wonder if that's accurate. Perhaps there is something about growing older that changes the way we see the world. Perhaps when we're continuously confronted with sin and brokenness, when we're disappointed again and again by imperfect people and dysfunctional systems, we lose our idealism and we're just more realistic. The risks just aren't worth it anymore. No one is trustworthy. No one is going to save us. So we've just got to save ourselves. Does that track with your experience of life with God too? That when you're confronted with the reality of the world, it's harder to take risks that felt easier in your journey with Christ? We're more aware of the potential costs and frankly, we might just be tired. Because eventually we come home from camp or from the missions trip. Life moves on past the cancer, and kids just get more complicated. Or maybe that pregnancy test never turns positive. Or the threat of cancer never goes away. Our favorite spiritual leader betrays us. We're never quite financially secure. And the conflict in the world it never stops. Yes, of of course our hearts still yearn for salvation that Jesus promises, but we're not as idealistic about what that's going to look like can't trust that following Jesus in those risky ways is going to help today. We have to save ourselves now and trust Jesus later. We can't afford to be radical anymore. There's just too much to lose. When God called my family to the greater Boston area to serve High Rock, it was an act of trust in God to say yes. We left behind our support systems, our financial security, and the familiarity of a city that we loved. But we had experienced God's remarkable providence in the past, and we'd found true life in that trust. And so taking that radical step, it seemed worth it. But those first few years, man, those years were really hard. Money was so tight. We were really lonely, even though, high rockers, y'all are some of the most welcoming people. I went to God many nights asking why we were here. We said yes to God, and yet I felt that instinct to trying to create safety and security for myself by walking away and going back to Chicago, where I knew it would be easier. When faced with the challenges of real life, it was easy to forget the ways that God was providing. We were growing up, and so maybe those risks just weren't worth it anymore. Maybe that's a little bit of what we're seeing with Jesus in the text today. Historians estimate that the disciples were all between 15 and 20 years old when Jesus called them, young enough to still have big dreams and a radical faith. And that faith is well-placed, right? The disciples have had one life-altering encounter with Jesus after another. But when we meet them, it seems like they might be growing up a little bit, counting the cost of following Jesus. In the beginning of Luke 9, Jesus sends the disciples out with his power to do the same things that he was doing—cast out demons, heal the sick proclaimed that Jesus was inaugurating the reign of God's kingdom that brought freedom to the oppressed and relief to the poor. Not only that, but the disciples weren't supposed to take anything with them. They were supposed to rely on the providence of God through hospitality from strangers. I mean, this is radical stuff. This is blowing past the boundaries of what's normal and witnessing the God-sized dreams that Walt talked about a couple weeks ago. Miracles, healing of all kinds, the clear display of Jesus' power and divinity, and then there was even the miracle of provision for their daily needs. Uh, honestly, when, when we read it in light of, of healing miracles, that might not seem so flashy, but the fact that complete strangers fed, housed, and clothed the disciples as they lived into God's kingdom, all it takes is one look at the complicated nature of care for the thousands of asylum seekers to realize how radical this actually is. The disciples have said yes to the radical faith that was required to follow Jesus because they believe that he is the Messiah. They've been waiting for this promised Savior to come and make things right for them now. And Jesus hasn't failed them yet. They've experienced firsthand how incredible life with Jesus can be. He was worth trusting. And so they make the radical choices that he asks them to. So they return from their trip and they tell Jesus what they'd done. They couldn't ride that high of the experience for long. Mark's gospel tells this story too, and he adds a little bit of color. He recounts that the disciples are tired. Taking these risks for Jesus was incredible, but they were also draining. But as tends to happen with Jesus. The crowds heard about his presence, and they show up to experience what all the fuss is about. Jesus teaches and heals And it seems that the disciples never quite got to debrief everything with him in private. They never had that moment with him to recharge. So Jesus teaches and the day keeps going on. And the disciples realize that folks will have to start traveling if they're going to have somewhere to eat and to sleep for the night. There's too many of them gathered for the size of town they're currently in. Jesus gives them a radical mandate. It absolutely (laughs) blows past what is acceptable. You feed them, he says. Immediately, the disciples start to push back. Really, Jesus? You want us to do what? Feed 5,000 men and their families? That's like 20,000 people, Jesus. Even if each of us takes care of 1,000 people, it barely gets us past the halfway mark. We, we only have two fish and five loaves of bread, and unless we go buy food for them, I guess. But but Jesus, remember, we all quit our jobs to follow you. So, so where's this money coming from? Y'all, the disciples have just experienced, like literally just come home from the experience of of Jesus having provided everything for them. That when Jesus promises to provide, he could be trusted, right? And, And they were able to serve radically because they were being provided for. But when they were confronted with the brokenness of the world, the limit of resources, and the limits of their own energy, and the sheer abundance of need, And the disciples forget that they can trust Jesus. Their idealism is replaced by realism. Isn't that true of our own lives? That We find it so easy to trust God when we experience the fullness of life that only God can provide. And then we encounter the brokenness of the world. We forget so quickly about the abundant life that God provides. We can only see the scarcity of this world and we feel like we can only trust ourselves. This theme of God's people forgetting and remembering God is one that travels all through scripture. Adam and Eve questioned God's wisdom and sought security through getting their own wisdom, even after they had spent life in perfection until that point. Abram questioned God's protection and lied to create security for him and his family in Egypt, even though God had provided and protected them from before that. Moses, Moses didn't trust God's instructions for obtaining water that was necessary for life. Even though God had parted the waters and pulled the people of Israel out of slavery and oppression, the people of Israel themselves didn't trust that God could help make them great, and so they clamored for a different king to lead them. All these folks were meant to be set apart as God's people. In a culture that looked to many gods for providing what was necessary for a good life, God's people looked to God. Being monotheistic in this world was radical. It's harder in our world to identify the gods we trust instead of the Lord. But we certainly go to their temples to worship them. We build our lives around pursuing them. We raise our children to worship and pursue them too. We seek security through the gods of wealth, wisdom, health, freedom, entertainment, influence, family, achievement, comfort, predictability, and through the isolation and exclusion of others even as we can all look back with gratitude for the ways that God has provided for us in the past, as we look to the future, we forget so quickly, and we look to these other gods to save us. I found that it often comes in the ways that life can wear us down in the small, everyday places. When I'm seeking the right answers to impossible questions, instead of remembering to seek God's will, I can find it easier to move to statistics or or to the latest scholarship. When I'm encountering the limits of my body as I age, And after having kids, instead of remembering that I bear God's image, I find it easier to judge myself by the standards of beauty perpetuated by plastic surgery and insta-filters. When I'm feeling anxious about our family's financial reality, I find it easier to think about trading my pastoral job for something that would make a lot more money. We forget who Jesus really is. We forget that he is the Messiah. We forget what he promises. And so, of course, we can't be radical for him the disciples had just experienced god's power through jesus christ and on the same day they returned to tell jesus about it he asked them to do one more thing and it was just too much they hit their limit they couldn't trust that he would make a way and so they defaulted to their old way of living jesus knows who he is and he knows who god is he knows that god is worth trusting so he takes the little that they have and he gives thanks he breaks the bread And he gave it to his friends who give it to the people. There is enough for everyone that is there, even enough for the disciples. If the disciples had forgotten what life as God's people could be like, this miracle helps them remember. Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who is the Son of the one true God. In God's kingdom, there is always enough. That same power that provides healing and casts out demons has a way that no one in the community will go hungry or thirst. They don't need to be sent away to fend for themselves. They are invited to stay and to receive radical hospitality. After this act, Peter reaffirms who Jesus is. He remembers Jesus, you aren't just a prophet or a teacher, you are the Messiah. When Brad and I were so lonely and broke, I would get so angry at Jesus and I would try to solve it all for myself. Why have you called us here, Lord? So I started training for a marathon as a way to channel all my excess energy. (laughs) A funny thing happened during that time. Former High Rocker Melissa and Pastor John both reached out to me independently and volunteered to come in my long runs with me. I mean, this was not fun for them, right? I was running slow, and I was emotional. It wasn't uncommon that once we got to mile five, I started crying and sharing all of my struggles with these two. I realized somewhere along the way that they were gifts from God. That the thing I most desperately needed to be radical for Jesus was connection and a place of belonging. These two showed up and offered me radical hospitality that didn't make sense. Why would they subject themselves to running 13, 15, 20 miles with me except that they knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew and had experienced the salvation of Jesus, so they were able to respond and offer it to other people. They reminded me that I, too, could trust the provision of Jesus. Months after that miraculous feeding, Jesus shares another meal with his disciples where he again takes bread. He gives thanks, and he gives it to his friends. But this time he gives them the explicit instruction to remember him. We participate with the disciples and with Christians throughout time in remembering Christ in the sacrament of communion. Sacraments are often described as a visible sign of an invisible grace. Things that are invisible are fairly easy to forget, and perhaps Jesus understood this about us. Every day there are things that make us forget our God, who has provided for us in our deepest need our God who doesn't make sense in this world and who invites us to radically different lives. So Jesus invites his people to remember him in something each of us has to do every day, eat. <laughs> it's easy to be radical with Jesus when we're on the mountaintop, when God feels close. Perhaps Jesus knew this, that it's in the everyday grind of life that we need the extra reminder of God's worthy trustworthiness. So he asks us to remember in that everyday space too. Because, y'all, people are always going to be imperfect. And systems and institutions will always be broken. But God is perfect and loves me and you and this whole world with this same perfect love. The things we try to attain through relying on other people, laws, or even the church, they aren't ever going to get it totally right. But the things that we really want, peace, love, abundant life, these are the gifts of God for the people of God. And so the call of being radical comes out of remembering God's faithfulness and responding with faithfulness ourselves. It's not chasing the high of change or the security of stability in and of themselves. It's recognizing that faithfulness might mean change, or it might be a long commitment where we don't see a reward for a long time. But that discernment comes out of a daily remembering of all of the ways that God has been more than enough for us. Our daily practice of remembering where these gifts come from will allow us to trust God instead of going back to our old ways of living. We're about to enter into the season of Lent, where we'll explore the costs of being a part of God's kingdom. I want to encourage you to approach this season with humility and a spirit of being honest with God and yourself. Are there costs you're unwilling to pay because you're not sure if God will help meet your needs? Are there ways you used to be radical in following Christ that you've sort of grown out of as you've grown up? If you find yourself longing for peace in a world of constant violence, maybe you need to daily follow Jesus and being a radical peacemaker. Instead of shutting out people who irk you, try to create peace with them. Start by practicing peace in your daily interactions with people you pass on the street, with the folks that are in your home, and even the drivers that drive you bananas on your commute. <laughs> Pray for them, say hello, and acknowledge their presence. Maybe, I, I know you know, this might be too far, let them go if they cut you off. (laughs) And then when you're faced with a big conflict, you're already being conditioned to look to Jesus for how to seek peace instead of relying on imperfect tools. If you find yourself anxious about not having enough of something, time, money, energy, choosing to follow Jesus into generosity is a radical choice. Well, what would it look like for you to daily practice giving something away? Perhaps it's giving your time to someone in your life. Every day, choosing someone to call, someone to text, someone to invite them to grab lunch or coffee with you. Maybe it's committing to giving away 5 or 10 or $20 a day for a month without knowing how it might be used. Maybe you could do something like what Pastor John recently described from his previous church and commit to serving someone else their food for a common meal every day. Taking up a daily practice of generosity will form you for the big moments that ask you to be radically generous, perhaps in a way that will seem foolish to the world. Thanks to the care from all of you, I'm getting to take a sabbatical starting next week, and I'm asking God these same questions myself. Even though I've experienced miraculous provision in my life when God's asked me to take big risks, I find myself wondering if the costs of radically following Jesus right now are, are, are just too much. <laughs> we finally have a good community here. We have a home. My kids are happy. My marriage is such a gift in my life. I'm in a place in my job that, that's secure with colleagues that I dearly treasure. In a lot of ways, I have everything that I asked God for on those nights many years ago. I do have real peace. If I'm honest, I've been sort of scared to ask what God might be asking our family to do next. Because I know that if I ask that question, this peace that I have might be disrupted. It might feel too radical. But I realize that that's me just forgetting that it's God who's giving me this peace. It's not all that stuff. And that God can offer that wherever God calls us and however God wants to use us whether that's here or whether that's something else. And and so when I stop and reflect, I realize that we have grown up while we've been here at High Rock. Yeah, we've grown up in some of the hard ways because we've been hurt by imperfect people. We've hurt others ourselves. We've been disappointed by broken systems and institutions. We're less impulsive and reactive than we were in our youth. And sometimes, yeah, we're just more tired of paying costs. But I'm so grateful that that it hasn't destroyed our ability to dream with God, because for every disappointment, God has faithfully provided what we actually needed to thrive. And when I remember that, I'm excited to remain radically committed to the call that Christ has for our family. But I need to remember that every day, so I'm hoping to transform everyday practices like eating into ones that intentionally draw me back to God. At my morning meal, instead of rushing through, I want to start praying by bringing my desires to God, and asking God for what it is that I need to feel secure in that day. It helps me remember that God cares about what I need and promises to provide it. At my lunch, I want to pray the Shema, which is a prayer that observant Jews pray in the morning and at night. It's a helpful reminder of God's majesty, a calm fortress in the middle of a busy day. At dinner, we already practice this prayer of gratitude as a family, where we thank God for the best parts of our day, We give back to God the worst parts of our day, and we offer thanks for the folks who made our day better. We also reflect on someone that we helped. I'm hoping that using these normal meals might help our family see the invitation to God's kingdom, even when we're prone to forget. That perhaps these meals and these prayers would be fuel for the journey that God has for us next, whatever it is. I'd invite you to find a way that you can daily remember God's care and provision for you. If the things that I named earlier don't resonate, get time with a pastor or a spiritual guide and be honest about what you really want from God and what you really need to help remember about God's character. You can start naming that right now as we move into a time of confession and then to the table. Bring your fears, your desires, your big dreams to God. Because growing up doesn't mean that we have to stop dreaming. We just have the opportunity to dream with God instead of trying to figure it out on our own. Because every good and perfect gift comes from the God who created you, knows you, and loves you, and invites you to a life that is radical. Amen.